Uber has a software architecture with unique requirements. Uber does not have the fire hose of user engagement data that Twitter or Facebook has, but each transaction on Uber is both high value and time sensitive. Users are paying for transportation that they expect to be available and reasonably close by. When Uber's system is trying to match a driver with a rider, availability is favored over consistency. It is important that the rider can always get some driver, even if it's not the best driver. RingPop is a system built at Uber to provide scalable, fault-tolerant application layer sharding. RingPop is a system built at Uber to provide scalable, fault-tolerant application layer sharding. RingPop consists of a membership protocol, consistent hashing, and forwarding capabilities. Jeff Walski is a software engineer at Uber working on RingPop, and he joins the show to explain how RingPop brings coordination to distributed applications. It's a really interesting show on how Uber thinks about distributed systems. Before we get to this episode, a few quick announcements. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. There are more than 14,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, so it's a great place to get your product out into the ears of developers or to advertise available jobs that you might have at your company. Also, if you're an engineer that's looking for an open source project to work on, check out Software Daily at softwaredaily.com. This is an open source news and information site about software. It's being led by Jeff Tribble, a member of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can also check out softwareengineeringdaily.com, which is the website for this podcast. You can find links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find a link to sign up for our newsletter, Software Weekly. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Jeff Walski is a software engineer at Uber. Jeff, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. Today we're talking about RingPop, and RingPop is built to scan handle the scalability challenges at Uber. So let's start there, and then we'll get into RingPop. What are the ways in which Uber's scale is unique? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Uber's scale in general is unique just because of the the sheer volume. I mean, we're not a Facebook or a Twitter in terms of like overall read and write volume, but we're we're pretty high up there. Um, I would imagine that there's only a handful, maybe hundreds or thousands in the world that that are at our scale. Um, so that's a that's a challenge of itself. But um, from a backend dispatching systems perspective, which are the systems that I work on. Some of the, the unique characteristics um, of those systems is that, you know, they always have to be on. Uh, we're, a, we're a global company. We're serving, oh, I don't know, I think 450 cities or maybe even more nowadays. Uh, so it's kind of round the clock. There's no, no time for downtime, no time for uh, maintenance windows or anything like that. Um, we're a highly available system. We prefer to be highly available um, over consistent uh, we're real time and interactive, so you know when you open up your your rider app, if you're a rider looking to get somewhere, or you're a driver using the driver app looking to drive people around, um, when you press a button, you you expect a response, and you expect whatever action that you've taken to be reflected in um, whoever it is you're interacting with. So if a driver cancels a trip, uh, you expect the 
that the rider would would know about that in a relatively short amount of time. Um, and the the transactions are are pretty um, long running, like on the order of minutes to hours. So it's not as though you know you click a checkout button um, and that's all there is to say about it. We have to you know keep the data fresh in your app uh, for for minutes and hours at a time. Um, yeah, and we, I think one other. One other interesting aspect of, of Uber that Matt Ranney touched on when I interviewed him was that the transactions in Uber, I mean, Uber is kind of like a Twitter or a Facebook scale of throughput, maybe 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 less, well, probably less, but the transactions themselves are higher sensitivity. They're higher dollar amounts, so you can't right. just be loosey-goosey and drop stuff on the floor all the time. Yeah, that's right. Like Uber, uh, Uber users aren't browsing Uber and, and looking for the latest news there. They want to ride and they want to ride, ride immediately. And if they can't get a ride immediately, then then they're going to go someplace else. Uh, and we don't want that. We want we want our users to to trust us as a reliable source for transport transportation. So, okay. So what is RingPop? Yeah, RingPop is a it's a library that you install in in any application. Um, right now, the the description on the GitHub repo. I've actually gone through many many iterations of this answer, but the latest tagline that I that I have on the repo is scalable fault tolerant application layer sharding. So it brings that to your application. Um, that's kind of marketing speak. Uh, really, all it is is a Node.js library, and it's recently been ported over to Go, um, and it allows applications to sh- shard themselves arbitrarily by a, a sharding key of their choosing. So typically, sharding is talked about. Um, within the database layer, but RingPop brings that to the application layer and allows them to be a very simple in-memory key value store or a cache, or if you're a proxy and you want to coalesce requests um, so that you can filter out redundant ones or aggregate metrics by a certain tag name or something like that, um, you could do that by just popping in a RingPop library if your application is written in Node.js or Go. What does sharding typically mean in the context of distributed systems? Like when we're talking about sharding our database, what does that mean and how does that compare with RingPop's notion of application layer sharding? Yeah, so the way that you typically provision like a set of MySQL instances is in a maybe a a master, slave, primary, secondary type of relationship um, where all reads and writes go to um, a certain number of instances, um, and all of them are served either from the master or the slaves, but all of the data is co-located within those instances. Now, when you shard your application, you choose a bucket for your data to appear in, uh, and there may be replicas of that bucket. Um, but you're essentially breaking up um, the data and segmenting it or partitioning it um, across many different shard instances um, in order to achieve... Uh, any number of things, write availability or write performance, um, or just the the volume of data is uh, just too large for one database instance to handle. So you typically want to break that up across many different servers or many different hosts. Um, so that's typically what, what is seen in, at the database layer. Um, RingPop gives you a little bit of something different in the sense that it allows you to partition requests as they flow through your application and allow some sort of pre-processing or post-processing before that request 
hits the database, and maybe you won't, don't even have a database, and maybe all of your your data is stored in memory, and it allows you to scalably store that database in memory so that when you add new nodes, it gets evenly redistributed across the, the new capacity. This sounds like load balancing. Can you contrast what RingPop does with load balancing? Um, yeah, sure. Like, it doesn't preclude load balancing. Typically, RingPop instances, let's say you have a geospatial index that stores all of the real-time locations of all drivers around the world. Um, as drivers are driving around cities, they're sending their requests to some back-end set of systems, and you're fairly evenly load balancing that traffic across your system. Um, now, you can't keep those locations um, in every instance of your application if you were to do so within within memory of that application itself. So uh, in terms of load balancing, requests are still being evenly load balanced across the instances of your application, but because RingPop applies consistent hashing, it actually um, assigns ownership to a certain portion of the key space uh, within your application to a certain number of nodes uh, within your application. So let's say you have tens or hundreds or thousands of instances of your application, then each one of those instances owns some portion of your key space. Um, so not only is load balance, uh, not only are requests being load balanced across those instances, but your data is now load balanced and partitioned evenly as well. So another way to talk about ring pop uh, in terms of the literature I read about it is it's a library for bringing coordination to distributed applications that would otherwise run as independent worker instances. What is an example of when these different independent workers would need to coordinate? So, yeah, anytime you embed RingPop, your your instances become cooperative. Um, in most cases, or in a lot of cases... Uh, your service layer or application layer is stateless. Uh, and all instances of your application are kind of on equal footing. They almost act like a business logic proxy. So your application receives a request. It probably reads some data from a database, modifies that data by applying some business logic to it, and then stores stores it back. In order to um, divvy up a key space, let's say the key space is all users on your system or all jobs or tasks, um, in order to divvy that up to the nodes or service instances that are serving traffic, you need to um, allow those instances to discover one another. And then once they discover one another and who they're cooperating with, you can then assign ownership over a key space. So coordination, cooperation is kind of inherent to RingPop. It's not as though you kind of opt in or opt out. As soon as you opt into RingPop, your instances immediately become cooperative. So we often often hear distributed coordination as being computationally expensive. We hear this in conversations about Zookeeper or Console. Why is distributed coordination expensive in the context of these types of tools, and and how does RingPop differ from that? Well, I don't know if it's I don't know if these tools are necessarily computationally expensive, but think where where you take a hit or where there is an expense is um, 
as soon as you try to apply some sort of like consensus or distributed agreement, um, you know, that strictness requires some sacrifice to certain other things, um, maybe like availability. Um, so RingPop is not necessarily, it doesn't have any guarantees around con- distributed consensus agreement or linearizability or anything like that. Um, it's kind of weakly consistent and it, it forms this consistent ring in a, in a sloppy fashion over a gossip protocol. Um, so I think it's not necessarily computationally expensive um, and RingPop isn't doing anything to make it less computationally expensive. It's just um, kind of erring on the side of being a little bit uh, more weakly consistent than some of the uh, technologies like Zookeeper and Console. Okay, so I want to dive into the internals of RingPop, but before I do, could you give another high-level example of how a set of nodes might utilize RingPop? Like maybe you could talk about the geospatial example in more detail. Yeah, sure. So the geospatial index is kind of the canonical example because it's just a very simple um, in-memory key-value store. Uh, the way that we chose to shard that geospatial index is by S2 cell IDs, and S2 uh, is a geometry library um, originally developed by Google, and each S2 cell has its own ID, and uh, when the geospatial index starts up, there's a certain number of instances of that index. Uh, They all join one another by kind of broadcasting um, themselves out to some arbitrary number of other nodes. Um, once they converge uh, on and, and agree upon who the membership is, they can start to cooperate with one another and forward requests to one another. Um, and as soon as this ring converges on like a single membership list, uh, then the geospatial index will know when a driver location update arrives at a particular instance, I'm going to uh, look up the cell ID against the consistent hash ring. I'll get an answer back. That answer will tell me whether the instance that is processing the request owns that portion of the key space. And if it does, then it'll store that real-time location in memory. And if it doesn't own that portion of the key space, it's going to forward that request to the proper owner. Um, So if you can kind of take this example a little bit farther, when you add more capacity to the geospatial index. Um, some portion of the key space gets rebalanced over to the new capacity that's added. And those any driver locations that kind of get rebalanced over to the new capacity then get, start getting written um, to those instances. So that's how you could kind of just throw capacity at a ring pop ring. And no matter how your application decides to shard itself, um, the capacity will be immediately made use of or utilized. Okay, so getting into the parts of RingPop, there are these three main parts. There's the membership protocol, there's the consistent hashing, and there are the forwarding capabilities. Let's start with the membership protocol, which allows these independent workers to discover each other, detect failures. What is meant by membership in this context? What are the different abstractions, the different applications that we would want nodes to be a member of yeah it's it's up to the developers choosing really and and membership is exactly what you you think when you have a gym membership you've joined a group of other people that meet in the same place uh to exercise um so 
certain members in that group, whether it's a gym membership or maybe an application space, may know one another and be friends with one another. Uh, within RingPop, if your application chooses to use it, um, your application is serving some business function, um, and they all know about one another because they use this gossip protocol. So they're as soon as they start up, they, they join one another, uh, and we could talk about the join process uh, a little bit. Um, and once they find out who each other are, they all have a shared view of their world. Um, and then you could apply whatever logic it is you want to apply um, to your data set, whether it's geospatial indexing uh, based on a location in the world or some other things that we've done is um, we've had a, a service that sits at the, the Uber's edge that has um, HTTP long pole connections parked against each instance. And when we want to send uh, data from server side back to client, we have to find out um, which user's state has been modified and where their connection is parked, and we leverage um, sharding uh, in order to do that. Um, and that's kind of how, how membership is leveraged. Once you know all of these members join one another and are able to converge on a consistent view of their world, then they're able to function and cooperate in the sense that uh, they're all either forwarding messages or requests to the proper owner within the key space or processing the request themselves because they've deemed that they are the owner of that request. And the membership is handled by SWIM, S-W-I-M, which is an acronym for a gossip protocol. Why, and what, what are the situations where gossip protocols are useful? Because like in distributed systems, we have these gossip protocols, then we also have these stronger consistency models, or I don't know if strong consistency is the way to put it, uh, like Paxos and Raft, uh, that uh, things like Zookeeper are built out of. Could you give a contrast between gossip protocols and these other Paxos-like protocols and explain why gossip is useful here? Well, with gossip, it's more of, yeah, it's more about cooperation and the dissemination of information in a kind of, as Swim calls it, part of the acronym is an infection style or um, epidemic broadcast. You know, these these are the types of words that are used to describe gossip protocols. So just just as rumors spread in an office, you know, there's no central coordinator of all of the information, and the central coordinator is not delegating the information to all the others. Everybody is kind of on equal footing and and cooperating um, equally, and they're all spreading information as they collect it, um, which is different from leader and follower relationships uh, and a leader election and those sort of things that you find within Zookeeper and Raft and Paxos. Um, so within the GOSSIP protocol, SWIM stands for Scalable Weekly Consistent Infection-Style Process Group Membership Protocol. It's a mouthful. Um, but that's that's how information is spread uh, within SWIM is is in an infection style manner. Weekly consistent. So why is it that we can use we can have weaker consistency guarantees around a system like this? I mean, I think of a system like Uber. We started off talking about how the transactions in Uber are so important. Why don't we need strong consistency here? Well, we don't need strong. Con it's not that we don't need it, but you know there are there are trade offs. If uh, 
as as we were talking about previously, you know, each one of these Uber transa- transactions is quite quite meaningful um, to us. Uh, there's a lot of sensitivity around it, and if we reject um, pickup requests, um, or don't afford, we can't afford like some inconsistency in cancellations and and that sort of thing. It's going to it may lead to a a worse end user experience. Uh, in addition. Um, the consistency of data depends upon which part of the stack you're kind of operating in within Uber. Maybe if it, you're dealing with money, things have to be a little bit more strict. Um, when you're dealing with driver locations, you know, if you're going to get an update in however many seconds because, you know, there's a pretty frequent uh, ping frequency, then you could afford a little bit of uh, inconsistency in that data. And we'd much rather have... Uh, our engineers build applications that know how to respond gracefully to inconsistencies in data and repair that state um, in a way that makes sense to the user as opposed to rejecting requests and say, please try again. Maybe we'll dispatch a car to you that is not like the optimal car to dispatch, but as soon as we're able to repair the state and any inconsistencies in the data that we found, we may be able to assign you to a new driver. So the the end user experience in terms of managing these inconsistencies at the uh, within, within our database um, allow us to continue to provide a a uber experience that is always making forward progress so you shouldn't expect you know weird inconsistencies in in backtracking if you've canceled a request or a pickup um you know it ends up in some state that you can't get out of we always want to make sure that that users can continue to take rides drivers can continue to pick up people, begin trips and end trips, and having our applications manage those inconsistencies themselves just affords us a little bit more flexibility in, in how we tailor the end user experience. Right. This was another theme of the conversation I had with Matt, where basically in many situations in Uber, availability is going to trump consistency if we're talking about it from a cap theorem perspective. Um so talking more about gossip protocols, gossip protocols are usually communicating information opportunistically. And in RingPop, I mean, so, so in RingPop, does, does gossip between members of the, uh, of the system, does gossip only occur if those members are already communicating for some other reason? And, and when they're communicating, they just opportunistically gossip about what else is going on in the system or do the nodes ever say you know i haven't pinged the other i haven't pinged server b in a while i'm going to go ahead and ping server b yeah um that's a good question um and actually it's like swim is a is a gossip protocol that was designed by some people at cornell university and it's a quite an easy read the the white paper is freely available for anyone to read and within swim they define these ping primitives, and there's ping, and then there's ping rec. I could get into ping rec a little bit, but at steady state, once all of the members join uh, and disseminate information about one another, if if you know service instance A were to start up, there would be no other members in that ring. Maybe B starts up now, and A finds out about B by using some seed host file on disk. Uh, they exchange information about one another and they converge. A knows about B, B knows about A. And that process um, kind of happens 
you know, however, it, it, no matter how many nodes you, you add to the system. Um, now, at steady state, they're constantly pinging one another. Um, every 200 milliseconds is the default interval in, in ring pop. But at steady state, they're not passing any information whatsoever about one another. It's just a very simple ping um, and is used as a, as a fault uh, failure detection mechanism, almost like a health check that you would find in a load balancer. Um, so that is what's happening uh, continuously. And only when there's some bit of disruption in the ring, maybe a node crashes or a new node starts up, uh, is the information that is passed between those n- nodes a little bit more robust, uh, meaning the information that is passed between them uh, includes maybe the address of the new member um, or the status of the member that had failed and what SWIM calls uh, is a incarnation number, which is kind of like a, a generation number or a, or a logical clock for the node itself. So Ringpop uses consistent hashing to assign work across workers. Can you explain what consistent hashing is and why that's important here? Yeah, sure. So consistent hashing is a technique that I think was coined in maybe the late 90s uh, and was used um, to distribute cacheable data within web servers across many nodes within a server farm. Um, So the way that consistent hashing works is that once you project your key space over a range of integers, um, you can slice and dice that key space up uh, into individual partitions and then assign each one of those partitions to the nodes within or to the servers within your farm or nodes within your cluster, whatever the case may be. And the, the important detail about consistent hashing is that when the number of nodes within your cluster changes, whether it's reduced by scaling down or servers crash or um, servers are added to add more capacity uh, and and space to put your data in, then the overall number of uh, keys within your key space um, that are rebalanced because of the the change in how uh, things are hashed against the integer range, um, then, then the number of data that is rebalanced is actually minimized based on how consistent hashing def- has described or defined um, the, its underlying algorithm. So to what, how does RingPop compare to just like an in-memory distributed hash table? What's, what's the difference here? Uh, that's, that's essentially... What it is, there's honestly like very few primitives in in RingPop itself. Like, as a as a user or application that uses uh, RingPop, you call a bootstrap function on it, um, and then there are there are two other or three other functions that you might want to use that are part of its API. There's a who am I function, and that just returns it, the, the server's identity in the ring. Uh, there's we've we've called it different things over the over the years, but um, from what I remember, it's it's called handle or forward, uh, and that allows you to. Uh, we've kind of codified a very common pattern. So what you do is, when your application receives a request, um, you use the shard key to look that shard key up against the consistent hash ring. It gives you who the owner is back. And like I said before, if you own it, you process it. If you don't own it, you forward it. 
So we've codified that pattern within a handler forward API. Uh, and then the third or fourth last API is uh, or function is called lookup. Uh, and it, all it does is you provide it a key and gives you an answer back. So in many ways, it is it is a distributed hash table. It just allows you to build um, higher level application level functionality on top of those primitives and also gives you the convenience of forwarding traffic to nodes that actually own that portion of the pie. So is the idea here to move the data that would otherwise be in some have an abstraction of a database service and then a database. Uh, It's essentially moving the data from what would otherwise be in that database to the, the instances them, the instances of the main service themselves so that they don't have to reach out to the database service in the database. They just are reaching out to other members of the service that, that may have the data within them. Right, exactly. That is something that RingPop is used for uh, at Uber. Like I said, the geospatial index, it's a, it's a database itself. Very primitive one, but um, it is a database. Uh, the other things that you could do with RingPop, I'm not sure. There Maybe people have heard of uh, a technology called TWEM proxy, and it's a proxy that sits in front of Memcache and Redis uh, and allows and also implements consistent hashing. Um, so it divvies up your key space um, when you do reads on keys and writes on keys and allows you to put however many number of instances behind of in, uh, instances of Redis or Memcache behind TwemProxy and it applies consistent hashing to you and you know divvies up and partitions your data over however many instances um, you've got. So RingPop can also be used as, as a proxy in the sense that if you know, it's if RingPop or a service that's using RingPop is fronting a set of um, backend APIs, and maybe you want to do some request coalescing. So, if you're constantly fetching the same information over and over and over again, and you find that um, it's actually not as efficient uh, to send those requests to those downstream services, and you want to dedupe the requests, then if you have the guarantees of RingPop, knowing that most requests at steady state will be hashed to the same proxy instance, then that instance can dedupe all common requests. So, you know, it's like RingPop and RingPop applications can be used as a database themselves um, in memory, or they can be used as a way of applying additional logic or additional behavior on top of a request before it hits a database. And so there is no centralized hash table here, right? It's like every node has a hash map of different workers that it might communicate with. It's never reaching out to some distributed hash table and and finding out, uh, um, you know, where should I send this request to? That's correct. Yep. Every, every node or every service instance within your application has the same membership list. And on top of that membership list, that is kind of converged upon by using SWIM uh, is built a consistent hash ring. And then the, l- the consistent hash ring lookups are done within mem- in memory as well. So what about forwarding? Let's talk about forwarding here. I guess, you know, kind of to level set, what is forwarding? Forwarding is really just a means of transparently 
moving a request from kind of one from from origin to to destination. So um, the the nice detail about RingPop or applications that use RingPop is that clients or callers to that service don't know that RingPop is being used internally. So they could evenly load balance all of their traffic across um, all of the RingPop enabled nodes or the service that they depend on. And internally, RingPop is capable of saying, based on the consistent hashing algorithm, this key, this user's ID does not hash to the instance that is serving it. Let me then transparently forward that same request, packing it as a HTTP request over over a forwarding channel, um, let me let the proper owner process that request and send its response back over that forwarding channel, and all of this is completely transparent to the original caller. It gets the same kind of HTTP response that it would have gotten if if the node that it had sent the request to originally had responded to it, but it's actually being forwarded over a forwarding channel. Okay, so you gave a specific example of this, but talking more generally... What are the conditions where an application instance would want to forward a request that it received? Um, yeah, so to go back to the geospatial index example, um, if I were to use Uber's driver app and go online, my application would be sending location updates to the geospatial index however many after however many seconds. Um, as that request passes through some of our edge APIs, uh, that request would be forwarded to the geospatial index. But since that request is being forwarded over, um, you know, or, or evenly load balanced over some number of instances of that geospatial index, it may r- end up on the wrong, the wrong instance. And based on where I am in the world and the fact that we've chosen to shard by uh, an S2 cell ID and the fact that S2 uh, kind of breaks up the world and projects um, faces of the world on a on faces of a cube. Um, and each one of those cells has an ID and those IDs are actually assigned to some instances of the geospatial index. Then that request that originally landed on node A may actually be owned by node B and need and the driver's location, my driver's location update would need to be forwarded to to B. Um, so that that's kind of a concrete example of where forwarding is applied. Whenever a request that is uh, evenly load balanced over a set of um, bring pop enabled nodes ends up on the the node that does not own the key, then it needs to be forwarded to the proper owner. So does each service at Uber that uses RingPop, they each have their own uh, gossip um, gossip network, uh, if I'm correct? Like, uh, like the, it just has sets of instances that are gossiping with each other. You don't have, like, instances of service A that are gossiping with instances of service B. Is that accurate? That is, that is accurate. Although... It's it's interesting in that you also have to put protection into your into RingPop uh, to allow that not to happen because then you get two different services that have two different sets of business logic converging on one common ring and they're forwarding requests to nodes that don't even belong to one another. Like back to that idea of membership, they they're part of a different group, part of a different gym, um, and they shouldn't be communicating with one another. So you also have to put protection protection in from from that not happening. Well, why would that 
why would you need protection against that? I mean, it seems like you would just have these totally disjoint sets of servers uh, that know about, they each know about their respective sets. Help me understand why you, why you would need protection against there being crossover between those disjoint sets. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite easy. Um, and it's, it's uh, yeah, the reason is quite simple. Uh, and it has to do with the join process. So when you start your your the instance of your application up, it needs to know whom to join, what the other instances of your application are. So it could use some service discovery mechanism. It could use IP multicast. It could use some file on disk that has a relatively recent copy of the nodes in your cluster on it. And in case the wrong seed file is read or the service discovery system gives you the wrong answer back, then you might join the wrong ring. Um, so it's as simple as like getting the wrong seed information uh, wow. and then kind of having a cross-pollination of uh, multiple different clusters. So would that, that's essentially like human error though, right? If that, if that occurs, that's a sign of human error. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I guess it all comes down to, to humans and, and our errors, but yeah, it, it could happen. It has happened. Okay, interesting. Okay, so 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 you want to put in protection mechanisms against somebody accidentally uh, putting the wrong bootstrap file, putting the bootstrap file of service B into the bootstrapping process of service A, is what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Hmm. So, um, you know, RingPop is useful for dealing with network flaps, and I watched a talk where you were discussing this. Explain what a network flap is and, and talk about why RingPop is useful for dealing with this. Yeah, so a flap, it, that really doesn't have to do with necessarily a network flap. It could be any sort of oscillation between being unhealthy and healthy and unhealthy. Um, you know, like I'm sure you've heard of these cases where uh, it's hard to detect a slow node from a down node. Um, essentially, you're getting no answer back and you're not really sure why it is. Um, and the node that you're trying to communicate with is behaving erratically. Maybe, you know, in, in the Node.js world, it's, it's very likely or it it's, could happen that one CPU core is absolutely pegged and uh, that node there cannot process any requests for some time. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, it, it is no longer saturating the CPU core and starts responding uh, in, a, in a healthy way and, and passing all of its health checks. So a flap is just an oscillation between being healthy and unhealthy and back and forth, um, kind of ad infinitum. So it's something, something like a partial failure, maybe a type of partial failure. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, more of an oscillation in that it's it's nice if nodes within your system behaved uh, predictably in the sense that they're either healthy or unhealthy and they stay that way and it's very uh, predictable and visible that they are healthy or unhealthy. But sometimes it's actually a little bit of both um, within a very short time frame. So we have to be a little bit more cognizant that 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 could happen and how to deal with those sorts of intermittent transient failures. Right. So we have these intermittent transient failures. We have this this flapping. What is flap damping? It's a technique to kind of suss out these bad actors in a cluster. Um, 
So the 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 technique we've we've applied is uh, inspired by BGP routing. They have a damping technique as well, um, and it's meant to over time uh, kind of penalize oscillations within your network. Uh, and if they reach a certain threshold to just ban them um, and just say, you know, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not playing nice. So let's stop talking to you for a time period uh, and let you come back into the ring or, or the cluster when, when you know, you've, you've fixed your, your bug or whatever the case may be. Um, so damping is just a way of uh, slowly, gradually, gracefully um, removing a bad actor from a system. And it, does that uh, does that occur by? It sounds like it occurs by gradually decreasing the traffic that a flapping node is receiving. Um, so, what does that look like in practice? Is it does the network as a whole have to all be gossiping about this node that's that's being a bad actor, or do you just have to have one? node that recognizes a bad actor and the, and that node can say hey this this node is uh this node is flapping uh or do you do you need some sort of ensemble of nodes to recognize it yeah just give me give me more of a picture of that sure so we didn't talk about it but there's um there's something in swim known as a sub- suspicion sub protocol uh and when a ping fails uh the node um, that, let's say, node A pinged node B, and B did not respond to the ping, um, then node A chooses some other members in the cluster to say, hey, can you ping B for me? He's kind of, he's kind of weird. Um, does he look weird to you as well? Uh, so it's this kind of like coordinated attempt at finding out whether who really knows the truth. Um, so, and it also allows, it gives a, uh, it acts as a grace period for B to come back to life and say, oh, no, that was just kind of transient, like, everything's cool, um, let's continue on our way, like, don't evict me from the ring. So, we used uh, a flap damping technique in a, in a way that was very similar to the suspicion sub-protocol, and uh, every node scores every other node and penalizes that node if there is some oscillation in its status within the ring. And once uh, the damp score exceeds a certain threshold, there will be some um, specifiable or configurable fan-out to some other number of nodes to say uh, to ask whether um, that node that the original node deemed to be flappy is also flappy to them. Um, and there's kind of this agreement, uh, not in a consensus way, but uh, that, that, yes, this node is in fact flappy. Now, the problem there is that um, you have to be careful to make sure that every, every node in the system isn't kind of voting off every other node, you know, and because then you're going to form some some number of islands uh, where nodes are just kind of participating in a cluster themselves because they voted everybody else off. So you got to be a little bit careful there. Hmm. Can you talk more about how, how that can happen? How can you have a runaway island behavior? Well, it, it tends to be the case that um, 
there's never really one bad actor. There's like maybe three, four, or five, and uh, or tens or t- whatever. Um, so when you're implementing this flap damping, you may just have complete disagreement or the results are completely inconclusive, meaning everybody thinks everybody else is a bad actor or or there's just too much divergence in, in what the nodes think of one another. Um, and you have to make sure that um, when that is the case, you're not forming, you're not uh, increasingly... Uh, reducing the number of nodes in your system so that like you're it's almost like you're self-inducing um divergence in the cluster because the whole point of ring pop and scossip protocols is that uh all of these nodes within your system will eventually converge on on a common view of the world this is like a, a full membership view it's not partial um and as long as and and if you're going the direction with flap damping that nodes are making arbitrary local decisions that are in disagreement with other nodes, then, then you're going to end up in a, in a bad place. Okay, I understand. Can you talk a little bit more about what you can build with RingPop? Because you've, you've talked in, uh, you know, I watched one of these talks where you were discussing these higher level abstractions you could use RingPop to build. You talked about the geospatial service. What are the other types of services that you could build with RingPop? RingPop was originally conceived uh, after identifying a uh, common need across four or five next-generation dispatching services at the time. Um, so one one was uh, something that I already mentioned, which is uh, used for HTTP long polling and parking connections and server-side push. Um, there was another one, another service that had kind of a... Um, a server-side representation of the state that was on our mobile phones. Uh, and in order to um, you know, scale that service out uh, as the number of n- uh, nodes and as the number of users on our system increased, uh, we sharded that service um, that had the in-memory copy of the client-side state um, with, by using RingPop. Uh, there was also the geospatial index, which is a simple key value store that was sharded by their the driver's location in the world. Um, we've also seen some more like less business focused usages of RingPop and more of like infrastructure level usages of it. Um, in in one example, uh, we aggregate metrics, uh, and when we want to perform aggregate functions like summing over a time window or um, the integral over a time window. Uh, we shard by the metrics name um, and and compute those aggregate results uh, by by using RingPop's consistent hashing capabilities. So over the last two years, we started out with about four or five different use cases. Um, we've held some workshops uh, for our engineers internally, and we've come up with a few other use cases and just kind of dabbled with experimental features. Um, but at this point, there are like oh, I don't know, maybe like 30, 30 unique usage, usages of, of RingPop or 30 different kind of internal customers of it, um, all using it in their, in their very own way. You've also talked about how it could be extended to build an actor model-like system. We did a show recently about Akka and the actor model and why the actor model is useful. How 
can you use RingPop to build actor model like systems? Yeah, so we didn't we didn't get all the way there, but I think there's some something to building a higher level, richer programming model on um, RingPop's very simple capabilities. And I think like with technology like Akka, you're seeing very similar things. It had internally, it has. Um, uh, membership protocol. Uh, there's a similar system out there built by Microsoft uh, called Orleans, um, and it also is has similar kind of distributed systems primitives like gossip protocols and distributed hash tables and things like that. Um, the one thing that we've done with RingPop is built on top of its consistent hashing is um, we've built kind of mailboxing functionality. So um, messages or requests arrive at a specific instance for a specific user. And we want each of those messages to be processed in serial um, by having them being plucked off of a mailbox um, one at a time. So, uh, you know, that is by no means like a full-blown actor model system. But I think the, the more we approach uh, a programming model where the interactions between uh, users on the Uber system uh, are modeled in such a way that they resemble actors and the interactions between them uh, start to model messages sent between those actors and those actors are using mailboxes to process messages um, meant for them and messages pulled off a mailbox could be sent to other actors in the system. Um, I think that that programming model is, is a very natural one uh, for Uber, uh, and in general, especially when you're building like real-time interactive games and you have many different participants and actor types within your system, uh, and their interactions can be modeled as, as messages. So I think we've not gotten, um, we've, we've not really explored that avenue, uh, too far with RingPop, but I, I can definitely see the value, um, in doing so. Are other companies using RingPop? There's been there's been outside prototyping and interest and contributions, but no, we're not actively collaborating um, with any with any kind of large scale deployments of of RingPop uh, in other companies. And honestly, like I think, you know, it's one thing to develop out in the open and put your stuff on GitHub um, and allow people to see what you're doing, but it's another thing to to like collaborate. Um, and engage the open source community and work with others to see how they might use it uh, and, and to kind of do open source development in that way. Um, and, and I think that, that that is something that is uh, part of RingPop's future is to um, engage the open source community a little bit more um, than, than we have. Yeah, you know, one, one thing I found interesting when I was researching this project is the the some of the Google projects, the open source Google projects that I had never heard of that RingPop was taking advantage of. I just didn't know the degree to which Google had developed these open source uh, open source tools that seem uh, quite important to the use of RingPop. Um, are, are there are there like are there things from the Google open source infrastructure that like Uber is the first user of, or um, or am I totally uh, misconstruing the situation? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think we're the first users of of any 
Google open source technology that I know of. Um, no, I mean, we're we're kind of user Uber is users of open source technology, much like much like every other every other company. Sure. Is. Sure. So, what are the what are the big challenges of RingPop that you're working on today? Like I said, more engagement with with open source community and customers. I think we've built a very strong team around RingPop. Um, originally, it was actually Matt Ranney and I who who had developed the the initial version of it, and then we just kind of there were more use cases and 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 bigger needs uh, and we've we've built quite a strong team um, around ringpop and one of the things that they're that team is capable of doing is you know working with customers more um, I think some of the other interesting things um, with ringpop is better handling of uh, network partitions um, so one of the recent features that has been implemented that ringpop did not actually have for a long time is is uh, partition healing so if you know, two parts of your network were to split evenly, RingPop would converge on both sides. Uh, but then when the partition healed, RingPop would, would stay split. Um, so one of the things that we've recently implemented is like self-healing self after uh, a network partition automatically without having to restart your nodes. So there's more, way more sophistication in terms of like data center topology awareness and multi-data center membership and all that um, but one thing that's that's kind of continuously on my mind is um, being able to set up a test harness for scalability and failure measurement. So, so what are the guarantees of RingPop, and uh, how fast does it converge under certain failure scenarios? And how large can we make certain clusters? Can we scale it up to twenty five hundred nodes? Can we scale it up to ten thousand nodes? And where are the the bottlenecks, and how do we address them? So, I think for RingPop's future, it's mostly about you know making it more robust. Um, and continuing to kind of push it up the the scalability meter. Yeah, that's that test harness sounds quite important. Do you have any predictions for where it's going to begin to burst at the seams, or if it's going to begin to fall over? Or do you get the sense that this is going to scale to the cosmos? No, it, it will not. Will not scale to the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I. Yeah, one of the things about about working for Uber is that we're very we're very pr- pragmatic. Um, you know, we there are there are theoretical and hypothetical challenges, and and although those are tantalizing, you know, there are there are things that we have to address immediately. Um, of course, we have to stay out ahead of customers' needs, and and uh, you know. The, the, the type of scale and load that we expect, but you know there's there's a difference between um, you know what's out ahead of us six months from now and then there's just like a really imaginary future. So um, I think what if anything what this failure and scalability test harness will do is kind of suss out those those bottlenecks. Um, in terms of where where things might go wrong, um, I'm not quite sure yet. Yeah, I don't. I don't have anything that's coming to the top of my mind. I, I know about a, f- a few different things, but um, maybe maybe nothing as well formulated. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on the show and making time. This has been a great conversation. It's been a real treat for me, uh, and I wish you the best of luck with Ring Pop. I hope it does scale to the cosmos and that you don't have any 
uh, I hope the test harness reveals how bulletproof Ring Pop is, and you have no more challenges in your uh, career as a engineer. <laughs> oh, but that's no fun. That that puts us out of a job. <laughs> oh, okay. That's that's why we're all here. <laughs> all right, fair enough. I wish you the most challenges that uh, are, are imaginable. Thank you very much. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash S-E-Daily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.